All right, and welcome back. It is behind the DM screen for whatever month this is. What is it? I'm, I'm a teacher and it's summer. It's, I'm just going to name this yeah, summer. Just summer. Uh, and we are three DMs talking about our games and helping each other out. And that's all the introduction you get. Oh, yeah. Mike, Yo. say hi. Hello. Sam, Sam, say hi. Hello. And I'm Jeff. There, now, you, now those are the three of us. You got us. <laughs> and uh, in our rotating cycle of who has to go first it is now my turn just to prove i'm not cheating and never giving myself the first the first go round. so let me start the timer on myself 15 minutes on the clock to for me to talk about my game uh and then we'll move on so i've told you about the um crazy mashup adventure campaign that i'm doing right so it's it's the rod of seven parts um, combined with Out of the Abyss and Princes of the Apocalypse. Uh, it also used to be uh, Freeport, but that's been sort of ignored and then spun off to be its own sort of standalone thing, uh, also happening in the world, like when we don't have enough players to play the normal campaign. Um, and then on top of that, it's also on my post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth setting, um, where weird things have gone on and, and all, you know, all that craziness. But there's, there's storylines involved with, with that element as well, because one of my players is playing a character who is an, uh, now ancient Japanese robot. Um, I don't think I ever told you about him. Did I? Oh, the robot character? Yeah, so he wanted to... He's like, oh, it's it's post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth. I want to be, like, a really advanced Japanese, you know, uh, what is it, Massimo or Aesimo or whatever the, the robot is that they you see on YouTube or whatever. <laughs> he said, like, right. I want to be a really advanced sort of version of that uh, that was, you know, found, you know, however many years later that, that we're in now uh, and, and somehow reactivated and it's a big mystery and they're trying to figure it out and his memory's all disjointed but he's loaded up with the entire um, discography of David Bowie and his name is Major Tom Stardust. So it's a, fun, it's a fun character. And That's I have, awesome. And yeah. I have this whole other uh, – and he plays a bard. So the, when he plays his songs, it's just a David Bowie track that plays through a speaker in his chest. Does he ever? Does he ever hear ground control? Uh, do they? We do make they that reach joke Yeah, yeah. Well, so they're part of a, a, a military type organization uh, in the land that they're that they're in, um, called the Citadel Defense Force or CDF for short. And so the joke is that they, you know, whenever they contact him, they contact him as ground control. <laughs> But there's this whole other storyline that I'm slowly building up to that he doesn't really know about um, that involves the fact that there's actually a whole bunch of those those robots that the CDF has recovered, but they haven't figured out how to reactivate any of them. Um, the the race that we're using is based, since we don't have like full-fledged actual finalized Warforged or anything yet, is based on um, Kobold Press's Gearforged. Um, and so their storyline is that um, they have these memory things that they can, you know, and his memory container or whatever tape is damaged. And so he can only remember like the previous 10 years of his existence other than, you know, a few snippets here and there. So you could you could like mix up Wrath of Khan with um, Iron Giant. Okay, walk me through that. <laughs> so Iron Giant is like this giant robot that walks around and thinks he's nice, uh -huh. but he's actually a war machine in secret. Right. And in the last Star Trek movie before this current one, uh, all of Khan's previous guys who were built for war were all in hibernation, and they're his family. Like, he loves them. Oh. Right? But they can't ever come out because they'll just destroy everything. They're all psychopaths. Right, right, right. And so, so he could be the nice robot. Right? right. He lost his memory, and that's making him nice. Of <laughs> course, that, that's putting it on him. So and, and, and that's that's sort of a, a vision that I have in my head as well, is that um, you know the CDF has, has, has found all of these, and there's this like 
insectoid weird alien race that keeps invading and, and raiding into their territory and so they're trying to build an army and, and if they could only just figure out how how Major Tom became activated then they could figure out you know how to activate all these others and whatever um, but the, yeah, he, what if, but, what but if that's a really bad idea <laughs> oh yeah but it, and it could totally be a really bad idea I haven't really fleshed all that out and he keeps throwing me these hints that are based on David Bowie lyrics mm. so I have to figure out how to implement things like Somebody in his past uh, who will come up again has to be the man who sold the world, okay? Because mm. that's a David Bowie lyric, and I and I have to figure out how to make that into a thing as well. So he he right. gives me he gives me a lot to play with. Uh, in a fact, lot of good you, seeds. Yeah, you guys know him. It's uh, Andy plays that character. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So he gives me a lot to play with. Um, and the so audience that, knows him too. They do. Yep. They do. He is uh, was a, a, a sometime replacement for me while I was. Banging my head against a, a semester, a particularly difficult semester. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, so and he is, and he was is the he enormous. Not Andy, but is uh, <laughs> is his robot thing enormous? No, it's normal uh, Warforged okay. Gearforged size. Gotcha. See, and so, part of part of the other element of Gearforged is that the re, the way that they've animated is they've actually been implanted with a soul gem, which contains the soul of a former living creature, uh, which. We sort of said we would hand wave, but I'm kind of thinking that I'm going to make that be an actual thing. Mm-hmm. That Because that, he, he doesn't think he has a soul because he thinks we just sort of hand waved that and said, oh, we'll just ignore that part. But I think I'm going to use that and say that, no, he actually does have a soul. And maybe he, his former soul was the man who sold the, the world or whatever. I just got to figure out what the heck that means. In any case, that's that's also a storyline going on on top of all these other yeah, a lot know, of a lot of room for that one. Right, there's a yeah. lot of stuff going on. Um, most recently, they have collected the second part of the Rod of Seven Parts, and they're starting to get some inclination as to what it's about and what it does. They right now they have to keep the two different parts separated because they've realized that if they try to put them together without going through the special ritual, uh, one of the pieces teleports away, you know, x number of miles in x direction. Uh, they did it once and I made it relatively easy to recollect um, and um, the one party member who's who's really into collecting these parts these these pieces of the rod is like well we got to go do that real quick before we head into the underdark and, and try to you know recover this missing dwarf from the dwarven delegation back on Prince of the Apocalypse um, who and the missing dwarf is Eldath from um, yeah out of the best, right? So I think I've explained that once. So he's like, oh, well, we, get, we can just run over and get that real quick. And they're like, you have no idea how far away this is. Why would we? No way. We're not doing it. We've already put, off, put this off long enough to go get the piece. Now you've lost it again, you know, <laughs> a day later. We're not going to waste more time going to get that. Her life might be in danger. And he's like, okay, well, let me go check with some sources uh, about how far away it might be or how difficult it might be to, to get and whatever. Um, you just got, you guys just hang out here for a bit. And then he just went and got a horse and took off. <laughs> and he found it because, I mean, it had just disappeared a few hours ago. I figured no big bad villain would have, will have probably uh, – you know, scooped it up in that amount of time. And uh, he was running solo and I didn't want to like slaughter him for, for running off like that or whatever. So he managed to recover it with, with some small amount of amount of effort and, and move on. Uh, but now he knows not to put them together until he can do the ritual. So uh, then they dis- then they finally headed into the Underdark. Uh, after moving around in the Underdark, uh, they, they, we went through the whole Neverlight Grove thing. That was super cool, um, especially when they got to um, Zugdmoy. Right when they actually started seeing Zugtmoy and whatever, and and one of the characters was like, uh, you know, you're all freaking out and running away, but screw this, I'm no coward, I'm an attack, and <laughs> so you know you can imagine that didn't go well, especially considering the entire rest of the party ran off. Right. Um, but eventually, within a round or two, Zugtmoy manages to use her you know charm spores or whatever, and and just say, you know what, get out of here, peon. At that point, Zugmoy had taken zero damage because Zugmoy can use any of her servants to block every single attack that comes at her, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. he, just, he just keeps – he's a warlock and he keeps th- throwing Eldritch Blast at her and, and you know, you just see Mykonid slaves jumping in front of it constantly and he hasn't – he could never quite get through it. Mm. So that was – but that was a lot of fun. Uh, the last session then – because it's been a while since we guys – we've talked, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the the last session we had a couple well a week and a half ago um we they then traveled to Blingdenstone 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, their whole deal, unlike the normal Out of the Abyss story, is they're not trying to get out of the Underdark. They, they've already figured out how to get in and get out. Um, th- now they're down there searching around trying to find um, Eldath and from the, the Out of the Abyss adventure. Uh, and so they're like, well, um, we have some indication she may or may not have gone to Blingdenstone. That you know, there's some trade that goes on between you know the surface cities and Blingdenstone, so it's possible they would go that route. Or probably more thinking that she went to Gracklestog, but whatever. So they went to Blingdenstone and they went through. Um, here's where I had to be a little creative, right? Because the, the whole deal with Blingdenstone is that the party is supposed to arrive. They don't know how to get out of the Underdark, and so they mm-hmm. perform a bunch of tasks to improve their favorability in the right. city so that somebody will tell them how to get out of the underdog. Tasks. They could be favors. Yeah, yeah. Depending on your group. You Tasks, know. favors, whatever, right? Uh, but, of course, this group doesn't have that incentive. Um, and they and, I, and I'd sort of... Part of me was like, well, what if Eldath's just there when they arrive? But then why wouldn't they just grab her and go? And, and so there's a whole... So I, I had her not be there, but I had to figure out how to get them to do this thing. And so it ended up being sort of a... Hey, you know, you need to go to Gracklestug next. We have the means to get you to Gracklestug mag- magically, instantly, if if it's really that important to you. Um, but we, you know, right now we don't like you, so <laughs> so <laughs> so it just became a massive quest after quest after quest. Um, the party got to the point where they're like, I feel I feel like every time I walk into a new part of the city. Um, there's like X number of people standing around with exclamation points over their head, you know, because um, it was just, you know, go do this quest. Oh, OK. Well, in order to do this quest, I have to go do this quest. And in order to do that quest, I have to go kill that monster, you know. And so um, but I got to pick out all the fun parts of Blingdenstone that I was kind of interested in, in running. And it went really well as much as they mocked sort of the constant quest line, like they were into the role play. They were into the completion of the task. There was, you know, there was punctuations of combat that that was you know quick but meaningful Uh, and then it hit a really good cliffhanger at the end of the session because at the very end they're like okay well we've discovered that we think there may be another demon lord here because they don't realize it's not actually the um juablax they think they you know they think it's juablax they don't realize it's actually just his minion or its minion um the pudding king right Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we think there may be another demon lord here. They contacted their superiors back on the surface. The superior said, "Yeah, that's probably not a good thing. See what see what's going on. Um, maybe do something about it. Whatever." So they've sort of decided, "Okay, we're going to go do 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 the whole battle of Blingdenstone thing." And here's the, your laundry list of things to do to prepare for that battle, which kind of like it it has in the adventure, right? And just as they're uh, in the middle of doing all these tasks to prepare for the battle, that's when Eldath and her the remains of her party show up. Um, and, of course, now they have a, a reason to stay. They're going to finish up this battle, but then we can kind of scoot out of the Underdark and move on to mm-hmm. other adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I feel like it went well, even though they mocked the sort of constant, never-ending grind of quest after quest, right? Um, but at the same time, I felt like they had, they had a good time in those quests. And I, then I get to completely skip the Gracklestug part of um, of Out of the Abyss, which I feel like is fine because while Gracklestug is interesting, it doesn't necessarily advance the story of mm-hmm. the Demon Lords at all, right? Right. So that's what I've been doing the last couple of weeks or last couple of sessions. Mm-hmm. I've got two minutes left. If you got any any thoughts or questions or advice based on all that, um, next what, we're going into the Battle of Lingnestone. What forks <laughs> of the adventure? So, so I, I I got lost a little bit. Yeah. Um, has basically uh, have you have you basically steered completely away from Princes of the Apocalypse at this point? Uh, so at this point, they they've okay. So the larger goal is still to recover the Dwarven delegation, right? Uh, which is a Princess of the Apocalypse storyline, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and so, so, but they also knew they couldn't get past the gates to get further down into the the right. dungeon in Disarin to, to get the rest of them. Um, so they're, it, it's not, definitely on the back burner, but it's not the primary story at the moment. Um, every now and then, like when there's a part in Blingdenstone where they were going, uh, there's the the area that's controlled by Ogre Mox Bane, and there's Medusa mm-hmm. in there, right? 
Um, so there was sort of a a, a mention, a beep, not even a B plot, a C plot during the last session where it was like, oh yeah, there happens to be this group of uh, cultists that have been asking for permission to go into that that area as well, and blah blah blah. Um, and in fact, they they managed to avoid dealing with Ogre Bane because they chose to not interact with that that mm-hmm. group that was from the Temple of Elemental Earth, right? Right. Um, coming to investigate. Hey, Ogre Mock, that's our thing. Let's go see what's going on. Let's see if we can use that. Uh, and so they didn't have to deal with Ogre Mock's Bane because the Temple delegation went in there and after some loss of life managed to to uh, – the way I figured it in my head, and they don't know this, was that they managed to capture Ogre Mock's Bane. Um, you know, uh, and, and spell it in some way. And so they're going to drag it back to to their temple and then the party will have to deal with it again later. Right. Um, so, so yeah, they keep that storyline just sort of, I'm keeping it on uh, in, in the elements of it, sort of in the, in their vision, you know, mm-hmm. so they're aware of it, but, but it's certainly on the back burner. It's not the primary right now. I mean, you, you can't mash up three different adventures and make up your own and then constantly do all of them simultaneously <laughs> in any given session, right? So what? You come on. Tra- you kind of trade off and on. <laughs> how how far do you what, – what level are they now? Oh, they got to be six-ish. Okay. And how far do you think you'll go? Um, I've got it planned up to 20. Uh, could, oh, really? You're going to do a full campaign? It could go up to 20, yeah. Gotcha. Um, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. But um, I mean, I think you've taken every like demon lord and elemental prince – you know, are now out in the open, right? right pretty much. So <laughs> they have enough material for level and, twenty. And and the idea is that they're all working for this. This, you know, all of them are connected to this. Uh, this larger concept of this chaotic being that the gods once had to imprison, right? Yeah. Um, which, in the Rod of Seven Parts, is given the name Mishka the Wolf Spider. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the Rod of Seven Parts. By the time we get to 15th level or so and the other adventures sort of wind down, um, then the Rod of Seven Parts becomes the primary story as they go off into the other planes to um, put the the Rod of Seven Parts together, which the whole point of it is to use it to finally um, break through Mishka's prison and, and slay it. Mm-hmm. So that'll be um, – and, and I have this – so on the map that I made of my post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth, um, like there are areas where there's clearly like rings of devastation, like craters mm-hmm. or a ring of islands surrounding something, but you know you don't know what happened. You know whatever mm-hmm. event caused all of this that the, you know. So there's like several of those throughout the whole world, and it, occur- and it occurs to me that if it works out right, um, when they destroy Mishka the Wolf Spider, then the Rod of Seven Parts will split into its seven parts. And then rip through time and space as they tear through those different, uh, you know, those different circles, traveling into the past and causing the whole p- apocalypse that they're now living through. So the whole party will actually be the cause of the the apocalypse and the return of magic and all these weird things going on, mm. which could be fun if I can figure out how to make that yeah. happen and make it like not completely cinematic it's- and off screen. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it's an interesting sort of approach also for how to handle the six-month release cycle of D&D Adventures. That, you know, right. the idea is in, instead of running, like I'm running mini campaigns for every one of them, mm-hmm. but another approach is you just run a big-ass, you know, full level 1 to 20 campaign, and then you take all of the big stack of next sets of adventures and turn those into one big uber level 1 to 20 adventure. Yeah, and that was sort of the idea was that it's like, well, man, I've got all these different things I want to run. Right. Uh, and I don't have time to. I can't keep up with them. Um, yeah, right. And, I, and right. I wasn't running at all during the release of a couple of them, and um, so I had a lot of catching up to do. And now it's like, well, I re- now I really want to run Curse of Strahd, but I can't. I have all this. Other- <laughs> so, I mean, I can't. Weren't you? Didn't you also have Freeport involved in this or something? Yeah. So yeah. the the Freeport thing was was an element early on, and they just didn't take that. They didn't follow that storyline at all. So I okay. so I spun it off into so it is still a thing that's happening in the world, and when I don't have enough players that can show up in it for a game session, then we run uh, Freeport as also happening in the world is this other thing over here because that also deals with you know the unspeakable one, some great ancient chaotic horror from beyond you know. So it's all happening in the same world. 
Uh, it's all indicative of the same problem, but they don't necessarily interact. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. But I'm out of time. And next up is Mike. Go. Oh, right. Uh, I am running Curse of Strahd like crazy. Um, I have two groups, my Wednesday group and my Sunday group. Um, both of them are doing Curse of Strahd. Uh, both of them started roughly the same time, but I think my Sunday group is, is a little bit further behind. Um, and one of the fun things that I've been doing is making, I've been working really hard. I realized, uh, that I write a whole lot about how to steer the game towards the background and and motivation of the characters, but I don't, I didn't actually do a lot of that. You know, I would talk about it as like a really good idea, but you know, I was actually kind of terrible. I'd be like, yeah, 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 background, background, background. Here's what I, here's what I'm gonna run. Um, and part of that comes from running a published adventure, where you know that sort of thing isn't necessarily integrated. Um, so with Curse of Strahd, I tried harder. I, I started both groups off by making sure that they had enough hooks already known um, that they could decide uh, what their backgrounds were. And uh, the Sunday group, for example, kind of all during the discussion, during sort of our character building session, they all sort of coalesced around the idea that there was this werewolf attack and that many members of the party survived this werewolf attack uh, and many, many others died. Um, and there was uh, at least one or two that sort of saved the others. And one of them is a, is a druid named Milo. And, uh, and his secret, his, his, his well-known, well-known to the players... Uh, but not known to the characters, secret is that he was a werewolf. He was one of this member of this werewolf tribe that attacked them and kind of changed his mind. You know, he sort of had that moment where he realized that this is not right. And he's sort of been cured of lycanthropy. He doesn't turn into a werewolf, but as a moon druid, he does sure change into direwolf pretty often. Um, and he still smells like a werewolf and members of the tribe, which is the um, uh, children of the night mother is the, the werewolf tribe. Uh, they know who he is, and he knows who they are, and he can smell them a mile away. Um, so I've been kind of changing, you know, many times I've sort of changed the direction of the game to sort of bring werewolves into the front. Um, most recently in um, the town of Veliki, there's a big attack that can occur uh, by vampires. And with the Wednesday group, I had a big vampire attack. Um, but with this group, I'm having werewolves attack mm. instead. And in the adventure, it's a bunch of vampires that are kind of hiding off in the um, coffin maker's shop. Uh, and in this one, I actually had a bunch of werewolves and their wolf allies sneak in as hunters who were bringing in dead wolves as part of the celebration of the wolf that the idiot uh, Burgermeister of Veliki was going to run. Mm -hmm. Right? And they, they had all these wolves that were all looked like they were dead, but they're not. They're all actually alive, lying in a big cart. And they wheeled in this big cart, and the guard's like, hey, they're all here for the party. Come on in. And they let him right in the middle of the town, and then the werewolves all attacked. Um, so I've been, I've been doing quite a, a bit tro of that. Trojan, a Trojan werewolf. A Trojan werewolf, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've been doing a lot of – I've been trying to do a lot of other things. One of my, one of my, my dirty tricks that I've been pulling off is um, I really try to say, okay, uh, if I'm going to start off with sort of a, a beginning scene, how can I – build that scene around one of the character's backgrounds, right? How can I make sure that that scene in particular is sort of designed to work with one of the characters? So instead of having a ran like I haven't been rolling random encounters and instead I've been, I've been sort of custom building a scene. So one example was uh, one of the characters plays another druid uh, named Lily and she's this kind of cute halfling druid with crazy hair and she's sort of, you know, ha happy go lucky and, you know, and and uh, there's this sort of evil druid cult in Curse of Strahd mm -hmm. that, you know, the land is corrupted by Strahd. So the druids are equally corrupted because they're tied to the land, which I think is a, a neat idea that there's sort of evil druids that are tied because the whole land is evil. And they know that she's kind of this bright spot. And they're like, hey, we really want her to join our group. So she ran into the, a crazy druid who's like, you got to come join us. Like, you know, you don't understand how awesome it is to be part of the land and to do all this stuff. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're lost. You know, she's like, I'm not lost. So they killed him. And, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I went to a battle real quick. It, you, you know, there wasn't any sort of moment of, um, you know, moment of. No, yeah, there's no moment of temptation. It went straight to a battle. But I still think they appreciated the idea that he knew who she was and, and you know. 
that that I mean, he the player mentioned it later. You know that oh yeah, this druid tried to convert me over, but we killed him. Um, and then the other one is uh, another sort of faction that I'm playing with is uh, a faction called the the Knights of the Silver Dragon, mm-hmm. which are tied to Argenvastholt, the castle. But in Curse of Strahd, they're just like the undead that kind of wander around. So I decided, what if there's a bunch of angry Barovians who kind of recreated the Knights of the Silver Dragon and said, we're going to cleanse evil from the land. And we're going to do so by finding corruption wherever we're finding it and hanging it from a tree. And that corruption could be that guy who stole or that dude who drinks too much. You know, so they... They're they're kind of over the top. They're a little bit crusader like from Thirteenth Age. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 over the top in their in their good in their good w- way. The zeal, yeah. They're the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, but one of the interesting things is so the paladins. You know, we have group paladins in both groups. One of which is a tiefling, and they hate the tiefling paladin. They're like, you are a spawn of the devil. You know, and they they and there's an Asimar in the same group. So they, they're trying to get the Asimar to join them. And, and they, they went to him and said, you know, hey, you've got to join us, but you've got to kill your, that, that you know, unholy paladin guy that's next to you. You've got to do it. <laughs> and then they're like, no, nah, and they killed him. They fought the silver, Knights of the Silver Dragon and killed him. But one of the interesting things, one of the knights, as he was dying, realized, oh, my God, he was killed by a radiant attack by the tiefling. And he realized, oh, my God, he actually is a good guy. I was wrong right before he was severed in half. Um, but that can kind of get back. You know, there's sort of there, – there's, there's, I, have, I have ideas. I think that guy's coming back as a revenant, you know. And as a revenant, he'll be like, yeah, actually, you know, that tiefling is not such a bad dude. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I think that that's kind of a neat thing. So I've been kind of adding these other factions, and then the factions I've been adding in are based on the – um, based on the backgrounds that the characters have. And it's fun for me because I'm running the adventure for two groups, but they are very different adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying you know, that a lot. One group, uh, one group went into um, uh, the uh, Vokter house in Veliki where there's the crazy Satan-worshipping book club. And you know, that was kind of a fun mini little adventure that they yeah. did. The other group skipped it completely. Like they, for them, they never even noticed that it was there, and they had these vampires running around the streets. Is and that, that was a much. Is that the like the ancient family in Barovia that's been like yeah working they're, with, they're working with Strahd since yeah, yeah. yeah. there's yeah. actually um, we read for the book club when this came out when the adventure came out we read um, the novel I Strahd yeah and and there's some interesting history with that family. Oh really? Yeah, there, there's this whole temptation storyline of how they became who they are, and and this whole thing where I think it was like one of the like an abusive family member or somebody that that Strahd like went after and got for them, and then turned him into a vampire, and then sealed him in a crypt. Huh. And this, so this guy turns into a vampire and wakes up sealed in a crypt, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah. you're going to hear some noise out of there for a few days, but it'll stop eventually." <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Eventually, it'll be too weak, but it'll yeah. still be alive. Yeah. So I, I didn't really tap into that much, and I didn't really tap into the idea that she was an ally of Strahd, and I should have. And instead, I, you know, because I, I, I run pretty loose, and you know, I, I ran her as just the they're they're summoning a devil. And uh, they had to stop the devil from being summoned, which of course doesn't really work anyway because you can't really summon stuff in Barovia. But I, you know, I, maybe they can, right? And that's right. some kind of special secret. Um, just like no one can leave or enter Barovia except the people that Strahd wants to. Right. Um, so that you know, I've been having a lot of fun. You know, just a lot of fun with that. Um, uh, what else has gone on in that game that's been interesting? I've been experimenting. Where, where, where do you see the werewolf thing going with that? Because that's one of the things. That, I don't know. That's one of the things that like I'm. It's cool that they've latched onto it as a cool background thing. Yeah, but it's also one of the things that when I read the adventure uh, and and both in this one and and the older ones when the whole werewolf thing comes up, it's like this kind of doesn't really feel like it fits. With the um, rest of the story as well, so it can. In the, I mean, like I'll 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 get it to work. You know, I'll work it in, and much of it will be that the knights of the the knights of the the uh, the, the children of the night mother are like Strahd's front line. You know that he owns them, and they. You know, so like there's that whole werewolf cave thing going on. Yeah. I don't think that's going to come into play, but I have a feeling that werewolves are going to continue to harass the party, and like big ass werewolves will be there with Strahd in Ravenloft. You know, they'll. So, so you know, there'll be some sort of... I'll, I'll probably do it that way. One thing is I am sort of conscious of the fact that um, Storm King's Thunder is coming out, and I, I don't want to... You know, I could run this forever, so i got to kind of figure out, yeah. okay, what's the, 
what's the plan here? Now, say, the plan- you, you've got this whole other thing. You know, my plan is is mash everything up. Your plan is to keep doing them one at yeah, a time, but quickly. I, I do. Uh, yeah, but, I like- but you're you're expanding things so much, you could probably go one to twenty on it. Sure. Oh well, I don't know if I could go one. to Yeah, actually, so I do have sort of a one to twenty thing. Mm-hmm. With Strahd, which is that Strahd isn't the biggest vampire in Barovia. <laughs> that there's there's actually older ones than him that have been they're like primitive, you know, primeval vampires. Mm-hmm. That you know, I had this whole legend of the first vampire, and that a lot of the artifacts that the group are finding, weapons and magical items that they're finding, are artifacts from the first vampire who was you know created back in you know before civilization was even formed mm-hmm. and it was and it, and it happened here in barovia and that's why barovia is so kind of dorked up well, and it could be one, so, of the, one of the the dark powers right that that turned strong yeah exactly right and amber temple could be all part of that right um one kind of sad thing so i i, I think my map is generally going to be that they're going to do the wizard of wine stuff they're going to do um uh baba la saga uh, which I'm running tomorrow night. I actually have a little stand-up house for the dancing hut, and I made a tiny little nice. skull that, that Baba Lasaga can ride around in. Um, of course, the problem there is the group is level six, and the house and Baba Lasaga are challenge rating 11 each. Right. So I don't know how I'm going to do that. We'll figure yeah, that out. They'll be fine. Yeah. My, uh, oh, my- I did have a fun, a, a fun moment where... Um, I think it was a wasp. So she, you know, the, uh, the, the swarms are supposed to be flies and I forgot and made them wasps, but I think wasps are kind of cool. <laughs> so the, they, they have these, um, scarecrows that are running around and whenever they cut a scarecrow or pierce it, it wasps come flying. A swarm of wasps appears. And I tell you, like those swarms, they're like CR a half or something. They're really low, but boy, they, they're a pain in the ass, you know? And the group in level six is like, Oh God, more wasps, you know, it's <laughs> the worst ever. You know, I want to, I quit. I'm leaving. What do you mean now I do half damage? And uh, anyway, so one of the wasps was dying. And I think it's oh, one of the characters started to do a speak with animals on it to kind of learn more. And it started speaking with Baba Lasaga's voice back to her, back yeah. to him. And he started talking shit to him, you know, to her. He was, <laughs> you know, he was like, you know, you're, I forget what he said. But he, he you know, was very insulting to Baba Lasaga, who then <laughs> cast Finger of Death through the wasp. <laughs> and hit him for something like 70 damage and he went from full hit points to zero immediately and the only sad part was apparently finger of death is not one of the spells that will just kill you if you hit zero because mm. uh, I thought that would have been pretty that would have been about the only good time to have a character go from full to zero is after talking a bunch of shit to like the most <laughs> powerful spellcaster in Barovia you know and then just fall over dead but I did have this moment where like his skin was all shriveling and his all of his life energy was going out and the paladin saved him with a lay on hands at the last second kept him alive but now they're like well that's one eighth level spell down you know <laughs> seventh level right they're like we'll burn up all these spell slots by her being mad yeah and it tells she rests well they're they're right on top of her oh, like, okay. they're, they're <laughs> heading towards her so any any way that they can burn a spell slot from her they're going to be happy um, but it's still going to be it's still going to be pretty interesting. Uh, so yeah, they're going to do Wizard of Wines. They're going to do Baba La Saga, and then I think we're going to head towards uh, Argenvasthold. Both both groups have quests for Argenvasthold, mm. um, and and go through there. And after that, I think we're going to the castle. And I'm sad because I really want to run the Amber Temple because uh, that yeah, place Amber, just Amber really Temple is one of the weird ones, right? Because like yeah, on it's one, it doesn't it doesn't match this. It does, yeah, it doesn't fit. It doesn't it doesn't it's not as necessary, but it does have some interesting like background into these dark powers yeah, and whatever that's really interesting. It's so. Prison, right? This like sort of a prison vault of terrible, powerful, and terrible things. Right. And I'm not sure how crazy I am about what's actually there, but the Amber Temple in my head is really cool. Yeah. You know, where it's got like a lich, you know, I think there's a lich in there, but he's out of spells, which is just dumb. So why not have a lich that actually has his spells? And how about we have like a, you know, a, a death tyrant in there while we're at it, you know, behold. <laughs> so like, to me, it's like the dare zone. So I'm always kind of telling the party like, oh yeah, there's a place called the Amber Temple. You don't want to go there. Like, that'd be a really bad idea. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of making it like the, 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 you know, there's a place scarier than Castle Ravenloft here and you, and you don't want to go there at level six. Or seven, or eight, or thirteen. Are you are you including the what is it, the Mad Mage or whatever they call him? Uh, so the one group, wizard? one group, I think has a quest to go see him, um, and I and I, I I suppose they will. Uh, so, but I haven't really given that a whole lot of thought. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of those neat little Easter egg things. Yeah, right. But, but, but it's I don't mostly know. a neat Easter egg, I think, for the DM because. Yeah, we the know idea we... that they would punch all the right buttons <laughs> to, to reveal 
yeah. who that is and what's going on is, yeah, is it's fairly very slim. And, and you could just run it without any of that and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But you could also make it a lot easier for them to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm not really that excited about it, but it also looks like it's a pretty small, it could be just a single role play scene. Yeah. So you can run that. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's been good. Uh, I've been I've been experimenting a lot with uh, running non-gridded combat. Uh, I have some players that are absolutely fine with it and enjoy it, and I have a couple that are like they really like the grid and the minis, and it's it's By kind of by non-gridded. Ups- you mean theater of the mind? Not necessarily. So I think that there's sort of a hybrid approach that I use, where you still can use minis and you can still use representations of guys, mm-hmm. but the square, you know, five foot five foot squares is not fun in my opinion. You know, like there's nothing high fantasy about a five foot square. Um, so the idea of like, well, you know, just sort of spatially representing things so people understand what the room is like mm-hmm. and, and, and who's in it and who you need to go and attack. And then people just say, well, can I get over that guy? And you're like, sure. You know, most of the time you can get wherever you want. And we don't care about squares of movement, you know, and it's always lame when you're like two squares away from hitting a guy. Like, is that really heroic and exciting? Why not just have him go up and hit the guy? So, um, you know, and I never want to argue about the circumference of a fireball. <laughs> it's just like to me, that's not interesting storytelling. So, how do your players that really like? They, no, they don't <laughs> like. No, mo- actually, most of them. So, so the argument that I hear most often is, well, as long as I can understand what's going on, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And, and they they generally, you know, that's why pure theater of the mind. They're really not crazy about, but I still use it, particularly if you're fighting like one guy. Yeah, you know, or you're fighting like three people, and it doesn't really matter. Then there's lots of scenes where there's combat that happens off 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 the grid. But if it's like, well, there's two different kinds of monsters, and there's some other weird effects, you know, I've definitely had it where like, well, I you know, I I wouldn't be in the front row, and I, and I did like you know somebody who's been very supportive of the theater of the mind got screwed because it wasn't clear that her character was behind somebody else, so she got hit twice and knocked out. When she's like, look, if I had seen where I was, I never would have been there. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's little stuff like that. Uh, but and, and, and the fellow who likes grid, I still think he counts it out from time to time. I really wish I had a battle map that didn't have a grid on it. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it seems to be working out right. And it's still, real, it's still real sort of speedy. And most of the time, if you go in their favor, everyone's happy. Yeah, and that's usually my... like. I do theater of the mind. I don't know nine times out of ten, probably. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't even pull out the map once a session anymore. I'll I'll just talking. Yeah, Uh, but but as a rule, like if it seems like a player is asking, like, so I don't quite understand. Can I do this? Then I usually err on the side of yes. Whatever yeah. it is you're trying to do, yes, you you can do it. Let's just let's just say you're close enough. Or, oh, I didn't think I was there, so I shouldn't be hit by that fireball. Okay, then you're not there. No, mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, so I usually just try to err on the side of the player. Yeah, I, don't think I, I, I tried. Yeah, like I, I put out that uh, an article about you know Sly Flourish's guide to narrative combat, and my intent with that was to avoid having to do permission gaming, which seems to be the default for narrative combat. That player has to say, hey, can I do this? And the DM has, gets to say yes or no. And I was more interested in saying, like, as long as, you know, we have a new set of combat rules that everybody understands and recognizes, and players still feel empowered knowing that things are going to work. Like, a fireball generally can hit four people, and you get to pick who. Like, we're not going to argue about which guys are inside of the burst formation. You get to decide which four they hit. Sure. You know, and does that make sense? No. Not necessarily. But who cares? You know, like... Let the guy hit who he wants to hit with a fireball. Um, and, you know, so I tried, to, I tried to build stuff like that. And I try to use it from time to time, but that hasn't been that. Hasn't been that uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's been a, a, a perfect success. Right on. So, all right. Well, that said, Sam. Yes, sir. You're going to be next, but not yet, because we have to remind people that this episode is sponsored by Noble Knight. Noble Knight is an online and physical brick-and-mortar game store that specializes in finding out-of-print products. Uh, So if you're looking for something that is no longer in print but sounds interesting to you, uh, go check out noblenight.com. Our pick for this episode was picked by Michael, I'm going to say J. Shea. No, E. e. Sorry. I think I knew, <laughs> Eric. You know, I think I knew that too. Darn. Norwegian. Norwegian Eric with a K. <laughs> so, so Michael Shea over here picked 
the Throne of Bloodstone as our pick for the episode. Mike, tell us a little bit about Throne of Bloodstone. So Throne of Bloodstone probably first gets people's attention because of the level range that's listed on the front of it, which is level 18 to 100. <laughs> and as soon as you see that, you know, your head kind of explodes. Like, whoa, 100? That's crazy. Um, the other thing that will get you with Throne of Bloodstone is the awesome cover. Uh, it's just got this great cover with this crazy gate filled with skulls and bones and this badass thing walking through. And I think the badass thing is supposed to be Orcus, um, but he's it looking is. pretty. Yeah, he's looking pretty buff for Orcus, mm-hmm. and uh, he's also. I think he's carrying a sword, isn't he? I don't have it sitting here in front of me. I, I believe. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but isn't he carrying? No, oh no, his sword. His wand is in his wand is in the module, but yeah, he's Yeah, but he's carrying a sword. a sword, yeah. So so that's a little, you know, that ain't quite right. But but who, you know, who cares? He still it still looks badass. You could say it's a Balor and everybody be happy. Yeah. Um and the adventurer is the fourth in a series of the Bloodstone series, which which Sam can describe in, in greater detail. Sam, do you have a one sentence? Summer, uh, so Bloodstone. Bloodstone Pass was the first um, module in the series, and it was the module that introduced the AD&D battle system, which was the sort of mass combat uh, system that was uh, – they were trying to sort of push in between uh, first and second edition, um, and it came with the little buildings that you could build. Uh, it was really a sort of hybrid miniatures battle game with module uh but then the since they did the you know h2 and h3 and h4 they they still made it into a true role-playing i mean it's a true role-playing series of modules uh but but all of the modules uh allow for some sort of interaction with um battle army size combat. yeah, yeah yeah troop combat and different things like that um, and also H4 actually has a bunch of planar stuff in it because around that same time the, the manual of the planes was being released. Mm. Uh, and so they, they wanted to incorporate a bunch of stuff in there from that as a sort of tie-in to, to the product category. So yeah, th- there's a lot of good stuff in there. H4 yeah. is a very good module. Yeah, yeah look, so. looking at the cover, I wouldn't have expected it to be a first edition module, but it's listed as first edition. Yeah, yeah it's although good. It's, 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 it has the aesthetic, the cover aesthetic of second right. edition. Right, mm-hmm. it's, it was pretty yeah. high end. Uh, well, it's, the, it's 1988, you know, and second edition was, you know, 89, 90, 91, they were yeah. developing, so. So they were transitioning. Yep. Yeah, so the, the adventure um, kind of heads heads past i think it's set it's all set forgotten realms right bloodstone lands mm-hmm. is in forgotten realms yep so it, it counts yes, as a forgotten but realms that, that didn't actually happen until the second module okay oh. yeah, yeah that, that's confusing yeah um, it, it, sort of h4 is actually the first one that had the forgotten right. realms on the cover but that yeah. doesn't really come into play yeah it doesn't um, because you you immediately head off into thanatos you know, like like early on, you know, you you there's this crazy I forget what it is, but there's like there's this crazy way you transfer among planes, and um, you end up in Thanatos, which is Orcus's realm. Uh, I had used this adventure when I was running my fourth edition campaign, mm-hmm. and I wanted to really I was kind of into the first edition feel, and I wasn't crazy about how the fourth edition module sort of ended up. I used a lot of stuff from them, but I wanted like old school, like, you know, we're all super high level and we're going to just this absolute, the shithole of the multiverse. Right. And, <laughs> and we really wanted, I really wanted Thanatos to be awesome. So I used this module as sort of a, as, as a, um, a guide for how I ran Thanatos. And it's got lots of great stuff. Big, I, I also used a bunch of other um, stuff about the Outer Plains. I talked about the major places. And it's real gonzo. Like, it's got bone cannons. You know, like, Than- uh, uh, his palace has cannons that fire bones, you know, and in artillery. And it's, it, like, you read it, and it's really pretty gonzo, right? It's pretty crazy. Um, but there's, there's, there were parts of it that I really liked and there were parts of it that I stole and used. So as sort of a good, like classic look, if you want to see what a high level adventure looks like, I don't think there is any adventure higher level than this, you know, 
with the one to the, the level 18 you to know 100, 18, yeah. 18 to 100 yeah. but i but just kind of set where it is against the monsters it's set against i don't i you know it's rare to see a module that really just goes this far off um and uh, so i so i like it for that reason i think it's worth getting right on yeah, about that 18 to 100. You know, to be fair, I mean, yeah. in first edition, there were level caps. So <laughs> by the time you hit name level, you really weren't getting very much when you leveled up every time. You were just getting a few hit points. Yeah, right. The leveling um, from yeah, so, leveling from 20 to 100 is pretty lame. Yeah, so, you know, the, so, you know a, a 70th level fighter is not very much different from a 90th level or, you know. It's, it's uh, kind of so, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, like, for example, if you, were to, if you were to do something like it in 5th, you'd take those, uh, the DMG, and you'd give those, uh, what are they called? The boons, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, every time you level, you get a boon, and, and that would be way more effective than, than getting right. yeah. 100th yeah. level. Yeah. And this adventure was published in 1988, has been out of print since then, so that's, what, 18 years out of print? Is my math right? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, 18 years out of print and available for $25 over at Noble Knight, along with many other out-of-print products. So go check it out at noblenight.com. That's almost 30 years. 30? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I asked if my math was right. <laughs> Mike piped up and said, "Yeah." So I was trying to sure. So <laughs> so I said eighteen, and it's Whatever probably like it is more like twenty eight. It's, it's twenty. I'm not paying attention. All right. Well, correction: twenty eight years. Thank you, Sam, for correcting my math that Sam that Mike wasn't paying attention to. And I always count on Sam for the details. There you go. It's old. It's old, but it's a good one. It's an oldie but goodie. one more uh dm to talk to about their game so sam take it away okay well uh unlike the two of you goons i have not been running D. what i i know i know it's weird but my group sort of shifted away from from D, and there's a whole bunch of games out there that they want to play so we've we've sort of taken a hiatus from D for a while um and so we I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but we played a couple of uh, games of the Star Wars Edge of the Empire, um, and we played a Mutant Future game. I think I mentioned that as well. Um, But since then, we decided that maybe we would try out Numenera. And so I've I've run a couple of one-shots. Now, remember, my group only meets once a month, but we meet for like 12 hours, right? So uh, I played a couple of long one-shots. So, you know, we're talking 12 hours. This would be three regular sessions. So they're really sort of mini campaigns, uh, really tiny, tiny campaigns. Um, and uh, the first one that I ran, I, I was trying to set the stage for a sort of Gamma World type game. So I was going to use the Numenera rules, but not use the Numenera setting. Uh, and that went well, and um, the guys had a good time, and everybody was fine. And then we had an old friend from out of town visit, and he wanted to play. So I ran a one-shot that was completely completely different not set in the gamma world game they made they all made new characters and i i ran this um this uh this scenario written by monty cook called the nightmare switch and um i run that yeah so it's it's a really really interesting fun adventure uh it's light enough and has enough sort of environmental things going on that you know they they go to a small town and there's some weird stuff going on and there's enough freedom for the gm to sort of do whatever they want to do with uh with the npcs and with the different people in town and so we had a a a lot of fun and uh the weirdness that i threw into the setting and into the town and into the things that were going on kind of made them decide that they wanted to 
play our regular campaign in Numenera instead of in a wacky Gamma world. They wanted to play a weird but more serious Numenera. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so now for the past couple of weeks, I've been planning the uh, the campaign that I'm going to run for them, um, which is going to be probably an eight session campaign, and it's going to be very intrigue laced. Because one of the players decided to make a character who is a noble, um, and so part of that sort of kit of things that he gets with that is having uh, a, a contact that is a noble person or or someone from a royal family who trusts him and who he trusts and uh, that he can call on in times of need or that may possibly uh, help him or may need help. So. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use the regular Numenera setting, and I already know where this character is is from. We determined that actually in the one shot. And what I want to do is sort of – so for those of you that don't know, the Numenera world is set up into two major regions. The first region is called the Steadfast, and the rest of the world is the Beyond um, and so we're starting in the Steadfast, and the Steadfast is basically this large area that contains nine kingdoms. And so this character, this P- this particular PC that I'm talking about, is from one of the kingdoms. And so what I'm what I want to do is not keep them in that kingdom because I don't want him to have you know infinite wealth and infinite royal you know benefits, so to speak, because he's in his home country. Because that's what would happen. So what I need to do is move them to a different area. So I'm thinking that the contact that he gets as part of his character is probably someone from a royal family in a different kingdom of the Steadfast. And there's one particular kingdom in the Steadfast called Iskabal, which is very, very uh, tenuous right now because the the rulers of that are being opposed by the sons of the previous queen who think that uh, – the current ruler is not should not be on the throne, basically. So that's kind of what I'm working with, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how to cobble together something that uh, isn't completely about sort of royal politics, and uh, but yet is enough of that that he feels like it was worth it for him to take that as his background because we had long conversations about whether he should take that because he doesn't want to take it and then never get to use any of the yeah, benefits, right. right? Right. So the other P, the other major PC, so right now I've got two PCs and the other, my other two players are away and they'll be back in September. So the first two or three sessions are going to be really heavily intrigue laden and with only these two players. And then, and then I'll have two new players coming in. So I'll have a four person party at, after that. So the other PC that is in this game, he is, a, a person who – so in the Numenero setting, there is this sort of overriding religion um, – well, it's not really religion. It's more of a uh, veneration for the for the ancient peoples and the ancient civilizations and veneration of the knowledge that they have uh, with the belief that learning more about those things that they left behind and the things that they built in the past will help the people in the current civilization. Okay, mm-hmm. and that that group of people are called the Amber Priests, and so there's a Pope. So there's this whole Amber Papacy thing in it, and it's only in recent history in the setting that it's sort of started to do these really sort of quasi-religious things, like having rituals and trying to minister to people and trying to get people to believe in the things that the Amber Pope thinks are important because they started to realize that there are all these little splinter religions and the people aren't really giving the the amber priests as much um, veneration as they should be giving them. That Well, at least what the priests think. So this particular PC that is in this game, he is actually – he believes himself to be um, a saint or a god – or the child of a god of a different religion, but he's very heavily also invested in the Numenera and ciphers and the technology that the that the, all the Amber Papacy is also interested in. So um, basically, he is a um, 
he's a heretic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, so the thing is that that's going to be really interesting when it comes to that, all that intrigue stuff. But uh, so what I want to do for this episode, cause I have some sort of, I just have like this sort of rough framework. I've been doing a lot of reading about the setting and a lot of sort of just thinking about it. I don't really have a lot on paper. So for these last five or six minutes or however long I have, throw at me, throw me some, some brainstorming. What, what would be really, really cool. Uh, so I'll tell you what set of, uh, have you read the Hyperion series by, uh, Dan Simmons? I have not. Uh, so it's a book series, but one of the things it's, uh, I would say it's up there with Dune as far as awesome mm-hmm. epic science fiction. And one of the things that I loved about it, it felt very Numenera to me, um, because it's super high technology, magic, mm-hmm. magic levels of technology, but it also has, uh, the sec, I think this is the third and fourth book. Um, the, the Pope is the supreme commander over the entire universe. Okay. And like, you know, all the, all the ship captains are like father captain, you know, father captain DeSoya is the name of the main character in, in those right. two books or one of the characters. So the idea, you know, there's sort of this interesting idea about having a, uh, an entire sort of government that's, that's also religious, you know, and how that affects, you know, how that can affect all of the rest of society around it, I think is kind of a neat, a neat thing that we don't often see. Mm-hmm. And then um, they get to sort of be the resistance because they got the. They can be right, but yeah. but right, and it's one of these. Obviously, we have places in the world that are like this now, but I don't think we live there yet. Um, where <laughs> you know religion is the dominant government, right? And right. you know any other belief, any other anything is 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 you know a, a capital offense. Um, one of the hard parts that I have with Numenera, I love it, and I want to. I I want to. You know, I always like to. You know, pretend that in some other alternate universe, I'm playing Numenera a lot. Um, I really, I really dig it, but I have a hard time because it is such a different sort of world that none of the nice typical tropes come to mind, uh, whenever I need to sort of whip something out. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think, you know, finding the kind of material that we can absorb Dr. Who is really good. You know, you could grab tons of plot lines from Dr. Who. Um, you know, what, what are the, what are the, what's the sort of fiction that helps back the sort of things you'd find in Numenera right. is a hard there's, question there's for me. There. That's, that's mm-hmm. totally not helping you get closer on something that you <laughs> Now you are talking about, you've got your one character, your one player who's got the noble background mm-hmm. uh, and you didn't want to do like a, a noble political intrigue because that would give them too much power. No, no, I do want to do that, but I don't want to do it in his kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. if I, if I do it in his kingdom, he's just going to assassinate his own father so that he can get power and then right. take the throne. I mean, I know this I know this player. Right. I mean, he would not he would he would not do it himself, but he would make sure that it happened so that he could claim right. the throne. Right. Um but if so they, I, but, but if they're in another kingdom, this. then he can still yeah. get some benefit from being a noble cuz he's, right. you know, a, a, an emissary or whatever from another kingdom. Exactly. Um but not, you know, overwhelming power. Okay, so you're already on that page. Yeah. Yeah. So I and I so here's what I here's the what my thought was that his contact is going to 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 contact him and ask him for help. And when they get to the new when they get to Iskobal, the the new place, I might set it somewhere else, but right now that's what I'm thinking. When they get to the new kingdom where he, it's not super super close to his his homeland, but it he could get back to his homeland. You know, he's not going to get, you know, stranded somewhere. Um but when they get there, the help that his that his friend needs is that um, his someone. I'm, I'm, what I, here's what I'm thinking: like uh, it's going to have to have some kind of a abduction, right? Someone has been abducted, and that person was going to be very important in some minor political wranglings, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're going to go have to investigate this, and they're going to find out that there's this humongous plot from these from the that are this being orchestrated by the sons of the deposed queen right Mm. who they feel like they're the rightful heirs but but the thing is that this is sort of one of those situations where the current king he's not a very good leader but yet everybody is in a very prosperous position so they don't necessarily want to depose him because better the devil you know right and he's not bad he's just not great what if the political intrigue that's going on is connected to the religious storyline as well yeah right Right. maybe it's the amber papacy that is you know they've got their worm tongue sort of characters in there manipulating things 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you could yeah. ev- you could even have the the character who you said would just as soon assassinate his dad so he could take the throne. Mm-hmm. Maybe while he's gone, dad is assassinated anyway. But the Amber Papacy uses it as an opportunity to take control, and now right. he's got to fight for his own kingdom to get it back, right? And so that now now he's not necessarily getting an advantage based on his nobility, but he's definitely the driving force of a storyline. Yeah. The other way to go is to um, is to let them discover that the Amber Papacy has something to do with it, but they can't tell whether they're the sort of good guys or bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the other thing that's happening in the world is the Amber Papacy is really, really pushing for a war against the peoples to the north. And so the northernmost kingdom is sort of tussling with the Amber Papacy because they're, of course, the northernmost kingdom. So they're putting a lot of their resources into, you know, into gearing up for this war. And they want to put a tax on all the other kingdoms because they're the first line of defense. So when this war happens, they need to make sure that they, you know, if everyone contributes, then they can, you know, hold the line, so to speak. And so there's there's there are other things going on, and so all of that can sort of be swept in as well. It's the Game of Thrones uh, wall, right? That everybody's supposed to contribute because of the first line of defense. Uh, I don't watch Game of Thrones. So. I've only watched the first few seasons, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> last season was really good. Yeah, but am I am I not wrong, Mike? Since you what? know Game of Thrones, that the, was- the concept of of the the amber papacy being sort of the first line of defense and and wanting every, all the kingdoms to sort of pay a tax to to maintain them is sort of like what happens with the wall in well, so so the the amber yeah. papacy the amber papacy they are pushing for the northernmost kingdom to be the first line of defense because that oh, okay. that's what the, they're pushing for the war. But the northernmost kingdom is like, well, we don't mind going to war, but we need some money from the other kingdoms I if see. we're going to protect their asses too. So it's actually so that it makes it actually more interesting because the amber papacy is like you know it would be a good idea if you used a, if you uh, put forth a lot of these resources and that we really push for this war against the northern peoples because all of those people up there are heretics and they're they're coming dangerously close to us and they're going to attack us anyway mm-hmm. and we need to have be able to defend ourselves but yet we're not going to mandate that everybody else pay taxes to you. Because the more taxes we make them pay to you, the more taxes they will pay to us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's, now, it's where's your now? You, you sort of talked about making the Amber Papacy sort of uh, an ambiguous: are they good guys? Are they bad guys? Thing going on, yeah. but given their background and what you're describing, it sounds like they're pretty much bad guys. But they're but they're bad guys that are part of the establishment. So they're they're deeply rooted bad guys, right? They basically are the establishment, right? Which which I think is fine so, because think- the the kingdoms have varying levels of expertise in taking care of themselves. But the amber papacy is very strong. Yeah, well, and I, and they I, don't I, have to be either good or bad, right? It could be so right. big, ubiquitous that right. some of it's good, some of it's bad. Some of the people are good, some of them are bad. Although, right. I, although I would argue that room to navigate within that the party, mm-hmm. if they're anything like the players I've played with before, um, will quickly decide whether they consider them, you know, ally or, or enemy, right? Well, and, <laughs> so. and that and that but see, that's the interesting thing is that that's that's kind of why I'm bringing the Amber Papacy into it is that the one PC already believes that he is divinely called, right. but for for a different belief system. Right. So he already is sort of on the fringe of he, – he, he, basically what happens is he thinks he's divinely called, but he thinks that he, – he believes that he already is an amber priest, but he was never inducted into the priesthood. He's not an amber priest. So people that he meets that are really believing – that they really are knowledgeable about the amber uh, papacy – they see through him right away, and they're like, "Wait, you're a heretic! You, you, you are, you know, you're a the last in the last session. Somebody called him a philistine. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you are somebody you do not know what's going on. You are touting. You know, it'd be like a, one of us putting on, you know, um, a, a a priest's collar and walking down the street and ministering to people, mm-hmm. but not being Catholic." And not being ordained and not – you know what I mean? So that's kind of what he's doing. So it's kind of weird. You know, it'll be interesting if they can't tell whether 
the actual sort of accepted religion of the Amber Papacy is good or bad. Yeah, and no, it's so and, and I, that I think that's fine to be good and bad. That so. level of ambiguity is is oftentimes tricky. Um, I think yeah. it, it can be done, but yeah, I mean, I, in my experience, players are either going to decide, well, they're either good or bad, or they're just not going to pick up on the ambiguity at all and and lose interest in the whole organization, right? So, um, yeah. I yeah. you know keep them active, but um, yeah, but but it, you know if you want to make that ambiguity, then you you make sure that it's clear. Well, they're huge and they're you know doing things. You know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and and all kinds of stuff. It's kind of the uh, they're kind of the Cardinal Richelieu, right, of the Three Musketeers. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's it's really weird because the way it's set up is kind of ingenious because you can really use them or not use them as much as needed. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, they're so big that you can – they're not really a shadow organization. I mean, they don't they're they don't have a bunch of thieves. They're not running a, you know, black market. They're not – you know, or are they? You know what I mean? Like it it's it's that it's that easy to sort of throw that in. Or maybe and, they aren't you know, as a whole, but you know, but a few some, of them but are. This sect- yeah, this sector over here, you know, there that one got involved that priest got involved and you know, his family is becoming very rich. And, you know, you know, so yeah, there's there's a lot of different things going on there. Um but yeah, so there's so many – I think that's part of the problem with my sort of little framework planning is there's so many things that could happen mm-hmm. that I have to kind of just sketch out. Here are some major NPCs. Here's a basic picture of what's happening, and then I'm going to have to you know, go off the cuff in the first session and see what they, what they try to um, – you know, what they go after in terms of, oh, was that clue? Let's go follow that up. And I was thinking of I was thinking of using this one published adventure called The Hideous Game as the sort of trigger because it does involve a kidnapping or a, a, at least a disappearance, and so I can work that in. There you go, uh, and make it part of everything. So I'm sort of I'm sort of cobbling like Jeff has been doing. <laughs> I'm go. cobbling mm-hmm. things together. Well, I mean, and there's an element uh, that that people should use, right? Where you just steal ideas from all kinds of sources, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be mashing up whole storylines, but just yep. stealing cool ideas you like. So, cool. Yep. Sounds awesome, and I look forward to hearing how it goes in about a month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, All if, right. Any, if anybody wants to ask any of our DMs questions, you can email me at thetomeshow at gmail.com, and I will forward those on. Uh, other than that, um, unless anybody's got anything else to say, I think we're, we're good. No last words? No last words. My last words are game on and have fun. Yeah, right. Get together with your friends. All right. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.